Blog Talk Radio. Feel free to use our call-in number, 
1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for our, your Monday night visits. 213-816-1611. By the way, tell your friends about us. Our membership is growing. We now have 1,030. Wow, that's really growing good. Don't forget, you can listen to any of our 430 Monday night broadcasts and 100-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and scrolling down through the archives of our broadcast. Each episode is briefly described. We're over 500 episodes now, including Eastern Airlines Music and History. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our hosts, we ask you to please mute your phone, as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. I see we're number one for takeoff, so Captain, let's get Eastern Flight 434 in the air. Tower Blur is Spotlights a diver at Acapulco. Referees a children's game at the pyramids of Teotihuacan. The sun warms a beautiful mermaid in Puerto Rico and covers the vacation paradise of Miami. Every year, more people choose this one to the sun because Eastern service is as warm as the destination. search for a way to discover longitude. If you were alive and moderately um, literate in the 18th century, you would have known that the longitude problem was at the most difficult scientific challenge of the century. And in fact, it had been a difficult problem for mariners for many centuries. Sailors had been unable to measure 
longitude. They were literally lost at sea as soon as they got out of sight of land. The quest had occupied scientists from the time of the earlier explorers, Columbus, Bartolomeu Diaz, Vasco da Gama, Magellan, Francis Drake. They'd all gone, they'd all had problems telling how far they had gone from east to west. Any sailor worth his salt could gauge the latitude well enough by the length of the day, the height of the sun, or by known guide stars above the horizon. So that latitude, these lines, it's easy to find out where you are in a north and south direction. And they also knew directions. By the 11th century, they discovered the first compass, that is, a needle rubbed with magnetite floating on a chip of water. They improved it to make it a card floating on a brass sphere after a while. But at least they knew the direction that they were sailing because of the compass. They knew where north was. And by the 14th century, the quadrant had been discovered. That measured the angle between the horizon and the celestial body, either the sun or the polar star. They look at the angle, what angle it is. You know the day and the month. Once you know that, and you know the angle you have, you go right to your charts, called the ephemeris charts, and they've already been pre-done for you. They tell you exactly what height you are on the earth, what latitude you are. Um, but longitude, that's another problem. The very earliest mariners had used dead reckoning systems. That is, they would tie a log to a rope, and then they throw the log over the bow, and then with an hourglass, they noted how long it had taken for the log to pass the ship and go the length of the rope, maybe another 50 feet. That told them how fast they were going, their speed. And then they would extrapolate from that and estimate how many miles they had gone in a day. But it was obviously uh, inadequate, the log message. They would then, by the way, record it in a book, which they called the log book. So we still get that word log from that, throwing the log over. But it didn't work. Finally, in 1714, England's Parliament offered a king's ransom of 20,000 pounds for anyone who could discover a method for determining longitude, east to west. How far did you go? Um, Parliament's, Parliament's sudden um, urgency arose from a disaster which struck the Royal Navy in 1707. Five ships returning home from Gibraltar after skirmishes with the French Mediterranean forces sailed in fog for 12 days. They were really lost in the fog. They're trying to return from it to England. Since the fog didn't clear, the Admiral summoned the navigators and the four five ships to put their heads together and get a consensus opinion about how far west or east are we. Well, the consensus opinion placed the English fleet safely west of the outer banks of the Brittany Peninsula. But as the sailors continued north, they discovered to their horror that they had misgaged their longitude near the Skilly Isles, those little islands off the land's end, they became unmarked tombstones for 2,000 British troops. On that foggy night in October of 1707, four of the five ships ran aground, drowning all hands within minutes. 2,000 sailors lost. This frightful British naval disaster had taken place because the navigators believed incorrectly in the fog that they were farther west than they actually were. It provided British Parliament, provoked the British Parliament to try for once and for all to solve the problem of longitude. Well, 
renowned astronomers attached, approached the longitude challenge by appealing to the clockwork universe. A lot of the people had tried this before. Uh, Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton, Edmund Haley of Comet fame, all had entreated the moon and stars for help. Meanwhile, lesser minds devised schemes that depended on the yelps of wounded dogs or cannon blasts of signal ships uh, strategically anchored somehow out in the open ocean. Well, that was kind of foolish, too. The serious contenders for the prize of 20,000 pounds were virtually all astronomers. Their general consensus was that longitude could be solved by examining the phases of the moon, or at least the distance between the moon and some other fixed object in the sky. But nothing ever worked. Um, one royal astronomer attempted to claim the prize using a series of lunar maps and maps of the heavens to compare with the lunar phases. Uh, unfortunately, that system required, it was so complicated, required the navigator to lie on his back for up to four hours looking at the moon and um, providing that would even work, that would provide that it's a, there's no f clouds in the sky and you have a clear uh, look at the heavens. So, of course, it was impractical. The solution was time. For a navigator to learn his longitude at sea, he needs to know what time it is aboard his ship and also what time it was at the home port or another place of known longitude at the very same moment. So we needed two clocks. Since the Earth takes 24 hours to complete one rotation, it was around, it takes 24 hours to go around, and then we know that there are 360 degrees in the uh, total rotation of the Earth, so when it goes around 24 hours, every hour it goes 1 24th of 360 degrees, which is, means you divide 24 into 360 and you get 15 degrees per hour. That's how far we go. So now, you have two clocks. Every day, the navigator, the seaman, keeps his clock set at London time or Greenwich time. And uh, you never change that. It just winds the clock every day and you keep London time. But out in the middle of the Atlantic, you have another clock that you use to fix at high noon where you are aboard ship. So you have two clocks having two different times. The one aboard ship, you wait till high noon. And by the way, the way they would, mariners would uh, discover high noon was you put a pipe aboard the deck of the ship, and when the sun passed over to a place where the sun rays were in the bottom of the pipe, they say, okay, that's high noon. Now, what time is it back in London? Well, we find out now that my watch here, we call it high noon, it's 12 o'clock. Back in London, it is only 9 o'clock. So then, we have gone with three hours away, therefore, 15 degrees per hour, 45 degrees. So now we know that from London, if that's zero, we are here at the 45th parallel right here. That way, they knew exactly where they were. Naturally, like everything else, it wasn't that simple. Clocks up to that time had been driven by pendulums. Pendulums swung back and forth wildly during a storm, and they couldn't be relied on. Uh, also, metallic parts within the pendulum clock expanded and contracted with heat and cold so that the clocks could not be accurate at sea. The prize was finally claimed. 
by a clockmaker by the name of John Harrison, an Englishman. But his 40-year struggle to win the prize money from Parliament makes a terribly sad story of frustration. He was 81 when he finally got the prize. He began building a watch which did not use a pendulum. It used springs, new system. Then he devised moving parts which were made out of two metals um, glued together but of different consistencies and that would overcome the distortion caused by heat and cold. He then devised lubricants which didn't freeze. Eventually, the method worked. It was proven to be, be accurate by two explorers. They were William Bly and the Bounty and James Cook, the men who circumnavigated the world three times aboard his ship, the Resolution. Uh, they both utilized what they now call the chronometer, and they both found it satisfactory for determining longitude. They had solved the problem. It obviously saved very many lives over the next 200 years. Um, today, everyone, of course, uses GPS, Global Positioning System, and um, makes all the other historical methods uh, obsolete. So, in fact, it seems that the only area in which people can still be lost at sea is in the arena of politics. <laughs> Very good story. And uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, it took so long in order to determine where one was on the Earth's surface or the Earth's sea. And uh, the story was told by Dr. John P. Callahan, and I uh, thought it was very interesting. And the clock itself, as a matter of fact, they had a series, I think, on one of the uh, news shows or, or history channel shows that um, showed the three clocks that are in existence in London of Harrison. That, and as a matter of fact, the first clock that he made that won him the prize is in a museum in London. So it was very interesting. And uh, any uh, comments about uh, time and longitude without it? Uh, well, we got GPS now, and uh, I guess it would have been very hard to launch satellites in those days, but uh, GPS works quite well. Well, at least we know where the time makers went. <laughs> okay. Uh, I remember when I first learned to fly in ground school, and Mike, you and Jim, I'm sure, did the same. But our navigation, we were taught dead reckoning. And, uh, of course, pilotage is from one landmark to another landmark. And in the early days, they even did that with arrows, monuments uh, across the uh, continent so that pilots could uh, find their routes to their destinations. But uh, we had to use the old E6B computer, and yep. we had a chart known as a sectional chart. We plotted a course, and... And then we had to calculate uh, various factors in that because we had to steer our airplanes by the use of a compass, a magnetic compass, which is not a very stable instrument at all. And, um, and then we had to consider wind, so we had to use the wind vector. You guys remember that, Mike? And yep. Yep. Yeah. yep. 
And then east is least and west is best. West is, yeah. <laughs> and there was another comment that I had in my original script, but I'm not going to mention that comment. <laughs> but uh, all pilots use crutches in order to remember uh, different formulas, and uh, there was uh, a crutch for uh, determining what your heading would be. But uh, at any rate, very good, uh, very good. Dr. Callahan, thank you very much for being with us tonight. I think he just passed away, by the way. I think. <laughs> yeah. After reading that, that I guess he did, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, very interesting. So we're going to talk about something else now, if I can uh, find the uh, music for what we uh, have to um, break some important news tonight, so let's see if this works. Breaking news, Chuck. Boeing's chief technical pilot on the 737 MAX project told another employee and 2016 that they were egregious problems in the jet's automatic MAX system, two years before first of the two fatal crashes attributed to the system, the New York Times reported on Friday. Boeing said it found the internal instant message sent by the pilot, Mark Faulkner, some months ago, according to Reuters, which first reported on the message. However, Boeing did not turn them over to the Federal Administ uh, Aviation Administration until Thursday. In the message reviewed by the Times, Faulkner complained that the MAX system was causing problems during flight simulation. It's running a rampant in the sim, he said in one message. Granted, I suck at flying, and even this egregious, he continued. In another message, he suggested that he had unintentionally led the FAA about the issue. I basically lied to the regulators, unknowingly, he said. Earlier in 2016, Fogner asked the FAA for permission to remove the mentions of the MAX from the pilot's manual for the MAX 37, uh, 737 MAX, arguing that it would activate only in rare occasions. The FAA approved the request. Faulkner could not be immediately reached for comment by business outsiders. This is open for discussion, and I would like to start it off if it's okay. This is uh, something that I've really looked into, and some of these things that Faulkner had said that unintentionally misled the FAA, I, I can't understand the word unintentionally because if you unintentionally do something, it would seem to me that you knew about it in the first place. And the other one was unknowingly uh, lied to the regulators. If you're lying to a regulator, how can it be unknowingly? This was um, something that happened almost two years before these people were involved in an accident. Why did Boeing let this thing go on for two years without doing something previous to that? Um, I probably could go on for hours about this, but does anybody else out there 
have anything to say about this particular um, discussion. Well, like you, well, of us really care about uh, someone not coming forward when they need to. What happens with some of these companies is that they're afraid of their job and therefore they don't come forward because they'll lose it, which is very sad and uh, a lot of people don't have the money for any kind of lawsuit. So that's the only thing in their defense. Go ahead, Jim. I think think he's got a good uh, chance of a career in politics. (laughs) Affirmative. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, what I got to say is that I flew the Lockheed T-33. I flew the Lockheed Electra, and I flew the Lockheed L-1011. And what we used to say back in those days, look to Lockheed for leadership and Boeing for transportation. And I'm telling you, Boeing's got a problem here. It's a big problem, and I don't think they're going to be flying these airplanes again for much longer yeah. than we think they are. It's good. They've got a problem with the public. The public, yeah. everybody knows what uh, a 737 MAX is, and they're going to go out there and look to see what's outside the gate, and they might not want to get on it. Yeah. They're not hard to distinguish either with those forward engines that they have on them. They may have to saw the winglets off it so they can fool them. But I oh, yeah, they were going to... Uh, uh, signify the FAA was going to signify to a group when they could do this, and wouldn't they notify the public that the FAA uh, is releasing all of the Max Nines for for flying for the public to get on them safe? Didn't the guy on TV say that he was going to fly the airplane before he released it? I don't know. They've been flying it, yeah, testing it. Yeah, I. This would probably be one of the safest airplanes in the sky once it's back up. You know, when I gave my little deal about the Lockheed leadership Boeing transportation, I forgot to add that I had over fourteen thousand hours in a Boeing seven twenty seven. So I flew Boeing airplanes by far, by far, by far the most of my career with Eastern and the Air Force. Yeah. It, it seems to me that a lot of things were not given to the people overseas and how this problem could arise, except in the United States, because I've talked to a few pilots that are, are flying the MAX, and I said, well, what happens when you have a runaway stabilizer? He says it's easy. You just shut it off and fly the plane. Well, that has been the problem with a lot of what people are saying, that there isn't enough uh, pilot training. And it's not the the problem of the pilots. It's the company that employs them that doesn't provide enough information in pilot training. And they'll tell a pilot that they're flying this plane and all of this, but they don't give them the information that will help save Mm -hmm. Uh, lives basically and it's half of their fault after Boeing and the FAA of course I think you know, myself I, I think that they have a, um, a problem between mechanical system and electronic system with this MCAS system because as, as Jim knows and as Captain Neal knows 
we if you want to stop a, a stabilizer or a runaway trim, whatever it might be, you oppose it. This is all mechanical stuff. But in this Max, there's an electrical system in there that seems to override all of that stuff, and it seems to work in the opposite direction. So I can see where it could become uncontrollable. But they also uh, say that if you know how to go manually, you should be able to immediately shut it off before it gets to a point that you cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so that's where Al comes in. That knows what to do manually, wouldn't you do it right away and not screw around? You, you, you should, that would be the logical thinking, but I think in this case, uh, we have, you know, like the 2001 Space Odyssey, Hal seemed to have taken over the airplane. Did it did its own thing. Yeah, but it'd be interesting to find out if that did happen here in the United States where there were problems and the pilots immediately took it off. Because I've flown on the MAX here in the United States and didn't seem, it just seemed like a nice ride. Well, didn't the pilot say that they did have a problem but knew what to do and they flew it manually? The American Airlines uh, pilots, and that was in that. Oh, I didn't read that. But it was American. I flew on all the time. So well, if you have a runaway stabilizer, what is the thing that you want to do? Is to shut it off and fly the plane and solve the problem. First you do, you pull the yoke back and push it forward or whatever requires. Then you do that stabilizer to turn the switches off, and that's it. But that's, that's it because that's all you did. Now they got all this electronic stuff running around. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I don't see the planes getting off the air. I don't either. I'll tell you, it's going to be a while before they can overcome their uh, uh, image of the 737. It's February, but you're probably right. It's probably not going to be until June of next year. At least. Boeing has another one on the drawing boards it's building so we'll see what happens it's going to cost a lot of money what in the world was that breaking news number two the FAA told Reuters that it found the messages concerning and that it was reviewing this information to determine what action is appropriate Faulkner is said to have pleaded the fifth after being subpoenaed for documents as part of the Justice Department's investigation into the MAC. Bowen CEO Dennis Muhlenberg is set to testify on Capitol Hill later this month about the two crashes and the development of the plane. The 737 MAX, grounded since March, since that second of two fatal crashes in five months, the preliminary reports about the two crashes, Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, indicated that the MCAS, which is the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, erroneously engaged and forced the plane's nose to point down because of a problem with the design of the system's software. Pilots were unable to regain control of the aircraft. The system could be activated by, in both crashes, the sensors that were thought to have failed, sending erroneous data to the flight computer 
and with a redundant check in place, triggering, triggering the automated system. MCAS was designed to compensate for the 737 MAX, having larger engines than previous 737 generations. The larger engine could cause the plane's nose to tip upward, leading to a stall, and in that situation, MCAS could automatically point the nose down to negate the effect of the engine size. Boeing is, admi- is aiming to submit a proposed fix to the FAA and get the plane certified to fly again by the end of 2019. U.S. airlines have pulled the jet from their schedules at least until January. And, of course, as I mentioned, they said it would be the end of February, and we all disagree. Discussion? They should have left that. They should have. They should have left the system the same as it was on the previous airplanes, and then trained mm-hmm. the pilots accordingly to handle the situation due to the uh, raised engines and all of that. They should have <laughs> just left it alone. It was working oh, fine they before all that. To begin with, and uh, not try to retrofit something that was a lot larger. It's hard to believe that in ground school, learning a new airplane, that uh, nothing was mentioned in the discussion, apparently, to pilots taking training and uh, getting on this airplane for the first time. Apparently, nothing was mentioned about this uh, MCAS system. Uh, It wasn't even in the manual. They they were supposed to have taken some kind of a uh, computerized Maybe a 15-minute differences course on the on the max. That's what yeah. I had heard, but I wouldn't yeah. think that that would be close to enough of any kind of training. Yeah, they got a problem on their hands, and it ain't over yet. Yeah, no. certainly not. Okay, here's the music. Breaking news number three. Jim Holder. Oh, Jim Holder. Australia's Qantas on Sunday completed the first non-stop commercial flight from New York to Sydney, which was used to run a series of tests to assess the effects of ultra-long flights on crew fatigue and passenger jet lag. The Boeing 787-87 Dreamliner touched down in Sydney early Sunday morning after a flight of 19 hours and 16 minutes, the world's longest. Wow. Qantas said test. Wow, yeah, double wow. Qantas said test range from monitoring pilot brain waves. I got a picture of the guys up there with things on their heads. I don't know. Melatonium <laughs> levels and alertness to exercise classes for passengers. A total of 49 people were on board in order to minimize the weight and give the necessary fuel range. Now, what are they going to do when they got 249 folks? I don't know. Overall, we're really happy. Yeah, it's gonna they're gonna have gym classes on that one. Overall, we're really happy on how the flight went, and it's great to have some of the data we need to access, help access, turning this into a regular service at Captain Sean Golding, who led the four pilots. The flight was part of Project Sunrise. I like the name. Qantas's goal was to operate regular, non-stop commercial flights from Australia's east coast cities of Bisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne 
to London and New York. My Lord, London too. Two more research flights are planned as part of the project evaluations London to Sydney in November and another New York, Sydney in December. Now we know, quote, we know ultra long haul flights pose some extra challenges, but that's true every time technology allowed us to fly further. Probably true. The research we're doing should give us better strategies for improving comfort and well-being all the ways that Qantas Group CEO Alan Joe Joyce. Night flights, and I like this part, night flights usually start with dinner and then lights out. But he said, no, not for this flight. We started with lunch and kept the lights on for the first six hours to match the time of day at our destination. That means you're getting ready to go someplace. You're starting reducing the jet lag straight away. Now, that's a good idea. Professor Maria Carroll from the University of Sydney said she and fellow pastors did a lot of, <laughs> did a lot of stretching and group exercises. <laughs> I see everybody up doing a jumping jack, you know, back in the show. But the problem is that we did the Macarna, whatever that thing is, an economy cabin. Now, you got a picture of 300 and some odd people, that guy sitting in the center Son of feet. Oh Lord, I can't out. I'm not going. I'm not going. <laughs> okay, <laughs> See, the longest flight I've ever had was from uh New York to I mean uh yeah, was it New York? Yeah, New York to uh Seoul, Korea and I thought that was fourteen hours. <laughs> Up over the yeah, Great Circle, well. over Alaska and then down to Seoul. Don't they change crews on those flights? Yeah, they got four people on this flight, Sydney. Yeah, yeah, they have to change crews. Yeah, the crews well rested. They got hidden in the back there somewhere. They got four post beds and all that stuff, you know, so they can go to sleep for a while. They're the only ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to see Korean Air's planes. They got (laughs) sleeping bunks right there in the cabin area. It's all, uh, everything looks like it's first class. Of course, it costs you a lot of money to fly it. But uh, now, it's rigged for those long flights, too. Well, they were written here's for right, one right, of the better right. airlines for long hauls. Yeah. Right to dinner number four, golly. Well, it very well could take me longer to read this story than it would to ride on the world's shortest scheduled passenger flight. Logan Air, a Scottish regional airline, holds that title thanks to its itinerary between Westray and Papa Westray, two of the Orkney Islands located north of Great Britain. The flight, which traveled 1.7 miles, lasts only one and a half minutes in the air. And the cost of a one-way ticket starts at roughly $22. That's a blip compared to the 19-and-a-half-hour flight that Australian carrier Qantas is testing this week, as we talk about. The 10,000-mile nonstop voyage on a Boeing from New York to Sydney will be the world's longest flight. That title was previously held by the New York-Singapore route flown by Singapore Airlines. That trip takes nearly 18 hours some 1,080 times longer than the Logan Air flight, give or take a minute. 
The Westray Papal Westray route isn't the only short flight that Logan Air offers. The journey between Ade and Kirkwall, another two of uh, the Orkney Islands, they're north of mainland Scotland, takes a staggering 10 minutes to complete. Looking to take a short trip closer to home? United Airlines operates the shortest flight in the continental U.S., a 16-minute trip between San Francisco and Santa Rosa, located in the Sonoma County wine region. And Coastal's flight operator, Greater Toronto Airways, boasts the shortest flight in North America, a 10-minute route between Toronto and Niagara. Now, in Hawaii, travelers can take a 15-minute flight between the Kalaupapa and the Ahola-Hihua airports on Molokai for as little as $50 on Mokulele Airlines. Of course, flying is particularly bad for the environment. Aircraft are responsible for 2.5% of total global carbon dioxide emissions. So travelers concerned about their carbon footprint may want to consider other means of travel. For instance, a 25-minute car ferry also runs between Westray and Papua Westray. And as to Eastern's shortest airport to airport distance and time was from Fort Lauderdale to Miami International Airport. And our producer did it often and in a L-1011. You got that right. I don't know whether, Jim Holder, you did that, but uh, I remember we almost I, left I, the I gear down and the flaps in the uh, landing position. <laughs> I did it in the 727. Yeah. You probably did it quicker, but we were only a couple of minutes longer. Yeah. Well, heck, uh, back in the old days, we, we had to do it nonstop from Oakland to San Francisco. <laughs> you could throw you know, a stone. You could throw a stone there. <laughs> you know. You know. I like. I'd like to. I, I'd like to point out that you know we just got through listening to them about trying to find out what their latitude. I mean, their longitude was and all that back. You know, seven, eight hundred years ago. I bet in about five hundred years from now, somebody's <laughs> gonna get up and say, "Do you know?" Back in 2020 or something like that, it took 19 hours to go from New York to Australia, and here we do it in an hour now. Can you believe that? They, those guys, how did they do that? So that's where it's going to be, you know. And we'll be up in heaven someplace looking down on them and say, ah, 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 you know. Well, Jim, uh, it also says here that the flight is going to be $22 for one way. That, but that's out of one of the places in Great Britain, so it probably cost thousands to get from here to Great Britain <laughs> and from Great Britain, Britain to Logan Air. You only have to pay twenty-two dollars, so that's a cheap ride, isn't it, to go? Well, let me let me tell you <laughs> that the story that Colleen told about uh, one point seven miles. And 1.5 minutes in the air is a video, and it actually shows the pilot and passengers taking off from this airport and landing in a minute and a half. And I was sitting there timing it, watching it. So it's it's real time. And uh, now they didn't count the taxiing to the runway for the departure, but they (laughs) They, they timed it from wheels up to wheels down. 
I mean, yeah. uh, landing touchdown. So it wasn't, it wasn't block to block, no. No. So it's, it's real busy on that because that was a meal flight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> real flight. <laughs> Peanut. My goodness. And you know, Logan Air was uh, one of the prestigious uh, one uh, airline of the year in 2018. So they're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys laugh about that one hour, but um, this guy that runs Virgin Air, he's going to take these people up into the subspace there for, I think it costs like 150 or 200 thousand dollars. He could stretch that all the way to Australia, and it, traveling at the speed that he he's going, he might get there in an hour. Yeah, buy <laughs> those tickets quick before Bernie Sanders gets a hold of them. Breaking news Okay, breaking news number five. We got a whole bunch of uh, kind of repeat stuff here, but we'll read all of this stuff. And this is a uh, by routers uh, by Ankit Ajamera wrote this. The Boeing company may have booked billions of dollars in additional charges related to its grounded 737 Max jets. Brokerage said on Monday, following the reports that it called into question the timing of the aircraft's return to service. Credit Suisse of UBS downgraded the stock after reports on Friday showed an internal messages between the two Boeing employees stating that the plane's anti-stall system behaved erratically during testing before the aircraft entered service. The new revelations pose a f- fresh challenges for Boeing, which is reeling, uh, is reeling under pressure after two fatal crashes forced the company to ground the airplanes and book million, billions of dollars in losses. The crisis over the messages continued to consume the U.S. manufacturer on Monday, with the chief executive officer, Dennis Mullenberg, telling all of its employees by email they should speak to their managers if they have any questions about the instant messages. Mullenberg began his email sent late Sunday, uh, the Seattle, uh, Seattle time, by saving Boeing saying that Boeing continues to make steady progress towards lifting the 737 MAX worldwide safety ban. Boeing's shares fell as much as 5.7% to $324.40 in early trading on Monday, making the stock the biggest percentage loser of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They may have lost 18% of their value since the second deadly crash of the popular single-aisle jet in March. The plane maker has already cut production of the MAX, and an analyst said there was an increasing possibility that the company would have to halt production altogether. We see an increasing risk from the uh, FAA administration that won't follow through with the certification flight by November and lift their emergency grounding order by December. UBS analyst Miles Watson said downgrading the stock to a neutral to a buy position. Walton cut his target price on Boeing shares by $95 to $375, citing the increase in likelihood of the pause on the 737 MAX production system due to the delay in the jet's return. UBS also downgraded Boeing's biggest supplier, Spirit Aerosystems, to neutral 
from a buy and cut the target price to the stock to $88 from 92 Billions in losses. Boeing shares fell nearly 7% on Friday after Reuters first report that reported the news, which prom- promoted the demand of U.S. regulators for an in- in- immediate explanation into the new call in Congress for the company to shake up its management. The company on Sunday expressed regret over the messages and said it was investigating what they meant. Credit Suisse, which had struck or stuck to its outperform rating since July 2017, degraded the stock to neutral and cut its target pricing by $93 to $323, 6% below Boeing's Friday closing price of $344. With a likely delay in the MAX's return to service until February 2020 and the stoppage of the production, the American plane maker could record a $3.2 billion in changes over a four-month on top of the $5.6 billion charge taken so far. The analysis uh, was done by uh, Robert Sping, Spingarm. BA could be forced to, fur- to furlough and fire a portion of its max workforce. This could result in a, la- in a labor force productivity when if the max does not return to service or if it doesn't return to service. When we have seen the consequences of such events in the shipbuilding, it can be ugly. And this was another quote by uh, Springham. Uh, the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, reduced its price targeting on Boeing shares to $370 from $400, saying there were many questions swirling around Boeing's culture, brand, corporate governance following the latest developments. Risk management, disclosure, and accountability of management, and the board could weigh in on the stock in the wake of this setback. The B of A analyst, Ronald Epstein said, he quoted that, uh, and this was reported by a few names that I can't even pronounce here, so we'll let that one go. So it's open for discussion, I guess. <laughs> go out and buy Boeing stock. What do you think? Not me. <laughs> it's amazing that a company can lose $5 billion and survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's... The, the government has it's bailed out. Sounds like a, it's a lot of repeats of uh, of all of this uh, this Mac stuff. It just is going on and on. It just uh, there's so many things on this Max that uh, it, it starts to get boring reading them now. It's o- almost like politics. This uh, MCAS system and all of that. There's just extensive reading on this. It keeps coming out. And it's just so so much repeated, and there's so much money being lost over this whole thing. And not only the from Boeing, but the, all of the uh, you know Southwest and American and whoever else is using these things, it's uh, it's really a big domino effect. Okay. Well, okay. That, that uh, Boeing didn't want to build this jet. Mark, what was your comment? I said, does anyone remember that Boeing didn't even want to build this jet? They really wanted yeah. to build a fat seven three seven. And American Airlines said, we're going to go with Airbus if you don't have something for us. Yeah, I recall something like that. Yeah. And so Boeing rushed into the 737 MAX, and Americans split it. 
And it's a very good never, jet, I think, but I think it was rushed. You know, I could never, I could never understand why Boeing uh, discontinued the 757. I think that, to me, was a perfect oh, that's a beauty, airplane yeah. for its category. It was, but it was yeah. a narrow body, Neil. That was a big thing. Narrow well, the, body. Well, the 737 is a wide, is a narrow body. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah, yeah right. the main thing was ground ground support, uh, Neil and, uh, and Jim. Well, uh, you know, that they, was they the problem a, with the seven fifty seven. You needed a ladder a to get to the ladder. That, put new engines on it, <clears throat> radically moving it up and above the wing almost. You know, it's, it's it was just crazy. But everybody lose that you're losing the whole thing. One man could have stopped this whole thing. Faulkner. If Faulkner had gone to the company and told them this is what Well, he happened. did. He put a memo out there to them, and, of course, they just didn't didn't read the memo or either read it and just decided not to do anything about it. That's that's what we heard tonight. That, that's what I think happened. They read the memo and didn't do nothing about it. Yeah. Boeing has got a 200-mile-an-hour headwind. Now, whether they're going to make it or not, I don't know. They're fighting the jet stream up, upwind. <laughs> if you can afford to lose five billion dollars and keep going, I I think they're going to make it. But it's well, going to be a long. This, you keep having these things come out, like these two guys, these two similar to guys. You keep, that stuff keeps leaking out. How much more is going to come out? That yeah. you know, it's uh, it's uh, not over yet. It's not over. Well, listen, you know uh, these you, guys, you know these whistleblowers. Oh, yeah. I'm anxious That's to hear. Well, I'm Keep your eyes on Airbus. What, I'm anxious to hear what Mark Porter is going to tell us in just a minute. But first of all, Don, I'd like for you to tell us about uh, what we're doing on Thursdays. Yeah, I, uh, thanks, Neil. I'd like to uh, invite all of our hosts and listeners to join us on every Thursday afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time when we bring to the air Eastern Airlines music and history. We play the music of the greatest artists during the Eastern years and sprinkle a little Eastern history in with it. So give us a call and share your thoughts of the music and the artists we select each week. We'd love to hear from you and like to hear, you know, what you'd like to hear. Uh, That's about it for that, but uh, I know Mark Porter's out there somewhere. Uh, Mark, can you bring us up to date on what's happening with uh, Eastern 3.0? I can. Eastern launches service December 5th from John F. Kennedy to Guayaquil, Ecuador, Thursdays and Sundays. This is rather exciting as this is Eastern's beginning, and it's a good, good place to fly to because you also have the Galapagos Islands. I'd like to see Eastern advertise that more than just you're flying to Guayaquil um, because it really gives people many things to do once they're in Guayaquil. With the jets, we'll have like 240 seats on them, 30 in business class, giving you ample leg room, and Eastern will serve hot meals from the countries that they're flying to. So when you're flying out of Guayaquil, you will get an Ecuadorian meal back to the United States. On Eastern, your bags will fly free. No one offers that. No one in the sky. 
internationally. Southwest offers that domestically, but since Eastern has the Boeing 767s, they have decided to offer bags fly free. And that, I think, alone will get a lot of people flying or that usually fly American or JetBlue, stuff like this, to go to Eastern. Because I think it's around $80 bags uh, to go on American. I think it's 40 35 25 for the first one and 45 for the second, something like that. And I know JetBlue only allows one bag. So this is a big uh, coup de grace for Eastern Airlines, I think, the bags fly free. Well, that sounds pretty that, good. I guess uh, when you buy a ticket now, you just buy a ticket to wherever your bag is going. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, have yeah, they settled I, on a uh, have they settled on a paint scheme and what the airplanes look like? As my it's my understanding that um, they're not going to paint any more aircraft for this year. Now I just don't understand that unless they're getting a new type of aircraft. Um, because if you have um, six more seven six sevens. Why not put them in the shop? Um, I don't quite understand that unless they're moving them to cargo or something. And they still have three Shanghai Airlines young 18 to 22-year-old aircraft that they could paint. So not painting any more this year is a befoodle to me. I mean, why have two that are painted? And they're going to paint, evidently, the tails, they say, in the color of the country they serve. Mm. I don't think that could be true. Otherwise, they would have had it painted by now. I think there's some inner struggle between could it be the classic Eastern and the Falcon or the indigenous colors of that country. I th because otherwise, they would have these white tails that are flying around painted by now or wrapped. Um, I'm open to any discussion there, but um, that's my opinion. Uh, why do you have these eastern planes flying around with white tails? I, with think, I think John Woolley wants one thing, and I think someone else wants something else. Well, sometimes when they designate uh, an investor, an investor is has a set aside a certain amount for each quarter. Sometimes when they need to wait for the next quarter, they don't do what you think they're going to do until the next quarter. So perhaps they have that in mind to paint them, but it's not going to happen until January or February or could be the second quarter. We don't know what they've segregated the amount of money that these airlines, can, or this airline, can use on a quarterly basis. That's the way usually investments do and any of the companies mm -hmm. I've ever worked for, and we've always done Yeah, they, they are quite a bit to paint. Yeah. They're about 750000 as far as I Right. Yeah. They cost a lot of money to paint airplanes. Believe me. I know I helped there's a, paint it. There's always, there's, always, there's always Sears weather, Peter. How <laughs> 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 about Mary? What was that Mary Carter paint? 
is my understanding that the 777s come on board in uh, the first quarter of 2020 and um, that they still have the intention to fly to Asia. So um, that that should be interesting. Um, I would keep everything here in the Americas but because they're such a small fleet, but uh, I suppose Asia is a lot of money. And then um, on Eastern Airlines 2, uh, they had the 737s. And my argument all along has been that Eastern 3 needs a feeder fleet or 7.3s if they're not going to do 7.5s for the Caribbean out of Miami. And N277EA is owned by KMW, which is uh, dynamic, which is Eastern. And N276 is um, owned not by Swift anymore, but it's owned by Wells Fargo, and evidently Eastern is trying to wrestle that one back into the fleet, and that makes perfect sense because now you'd have the 7.3s and the 7.6s, um, and so you have a feeder fleet of 737s. And that's Hey, hey Mark, yeah. I, I can remember, yeah. and I think Tim Holder remembers too, Back in the day when we first got the 727s, oh, maybe a few years later, uh, on the inside of the cockpit door, guess who owned the airplanes that Eastern flew? I don't remember. Greyhound <laughs> bus. They own the airplanes and lease them to Eastern. Yes, sir. Oh, I, think, I think you're right. I think I remember that now. Yeah, bus, yeah. I, I can remember. Uh, I, I was on this flight, you. and Mark, all the, the 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 toilets, the vacuum toilets came in after '91, and I noticed that this was a vacuum toilet on the 757. I went to the flight attendant, and I said, "Is this plane after '91?" And she said, "I don't know. Let's go find out." And this was just after. Um, 9-11. So she said, come with me. We walked all the economy. We walked all the way through first class. And I was noticing that everyone in first class was looking at me because the flight attendant was in front of me. And I was like, oh, this is way too close. And sure enough, the plaque is right there by the cockpit, you know. <laughs> and she points on it. She goes, yeah, January of 92. And I was like, okay. And as I was leaving, everyone was going, <laughs> I'll yeah. never forget that. I was like, here I was going unassumingly, but I should have thought more. <laughs> okay, those vacuum, well, those vacuum toilets saved a lot of money in toilet paper. Yeah. Well, let's let's check out Dorothy and find out uh, what's coming up here, Dorothy. Okay, let me give you what's coming up. Uh, we have next week, uh, which, of course, is our um, famous uh, Halloween mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. That's going to be another mm. exciting show, and we always love that. Uh, followed by 15 behind-the-scenes secrets of airline pilots 
And then, of course, we have Veterans Day on November 14th. We'll celebrate uh, November 11th Day on the 14th this year. And then following that is going to be a program on airline ditching. Now, in our music series that we have coming up, as Don mentioned, next week we're having Willie Nelson, so we can't wait to hear <laughs> that, followed by Nat King Cole. So we're really excited about our programs. Uh, we hope you join them. Uh, we'd love to hear you on there and your comments about it, as Don had mentioned. Uh, we also have on the Internet, uh, from I'm sorry, on our website, if you go to our website and you're looking for an archive program, all you have to do in our music program, the OTR program, is go to any one of the episodes from 1 to 34 and click on it, what it says. Read what you want to do if you want to see that particular episode. Click on the tab More. Go down to Old Time Radio Episodes and click on it. When you go in and you see all of those that you want, click on the one that you particularly want to watch that evening or that day. Listen to And it will obviously, automatically rather, go right to the blog talk, right to that particular one. You don't have to go looking around. You don't have to do anything. And you can go back and forth to our website and to any others that you care to watch. The same thing goes for our other program that we have uh, today on Monday. And you can see any one of those that are from the 200 group on. The 1 to 200 group that I have there is not quite finished yet. But anything from 200 on, you can go in and you can look at any of those that are archived. You can see what you want to do. Click on it. Uh, the episode three, five, seven, whatever you care for, 20, 60, it doesn't matter, whatever one that you want, and it'll take you right to Blog Talk. So that saves you from doing it. Of course, if you want to listen to the show live, you would do your ordinary, go to the Blog Talk Radio dot, uh, slash Captain Eddie, and you would watch it that way. But this is strictly for the archive programs. Um, we also want to mention we had a new, um, let me just get my notes here, I'm sorry. We have a new uh, member bringing us up to 1,031. So we're really happy. It's uh, J. Steve Rasmussen, and his father was a, uh, a management pilot in, in Miami. Steve joined October 17th of 2019. He's a male, 56 years old, and he's from Lady Lake, Florida, um, and he worked at Eastern Airlines from 1987 to 1992. His, he talks about his dad, Stan Rasmussen, and says he was a management pilot in MIA flight training and an early mechanic from 1955 in LaGuardia, Atlanta, and Miami. He was a mechanic in MIA engine shop in the late 80s to 90s, 90s, mainly worked in the fuel metering department. After EAL went to CO, 
and opened his own FAA component repair station where he sold that, and now he owns a battery plus store in the villages in Florida. He has a friend of Eastern, and her name is Barbara Bailey Claremont. I'm not sure if Colleen might know who she is, and she also lives in Florida. So, again, we want to thank our sponsors that have donated um, to our program to keep us bringing the memories of Eastern and carrying on the legacy. We do hope that uh, all of you uh, are listening and will join us at some point to tell us about your memory of Eastern. Uh, anyone that wants to see the list of donators, just go to our website and it's under the home page sponsors tab and it will show all of the people that have donated. Remember, you too can donate for $40 or more and you'll receive a copy of Neil's book, Wings of Many, which is free with a $40 donation. Back to you, Neil. Okay, Dorothy, thank you very much. Uh, we have a report from uh, Jim Holder. What's happening over at REPA? Okay, thank you. I'll be very brief. REPA is sort of going to slow book right now. We're not left going on. We had a great convention. We just sit back and enjoy life. Dear camp, get ready for Thanksgiving and and Christmas, but I must tell you that uh, former Eastern Captain Joe Forrest, later United Captain and retired Joe Forrest, has let me know that at the Reaper Luncheon on November the 12th in Atlanta, we're going to have a three times Olympian. That means these three years times or one three times, I'm not sure what it is. Ralph Boston, but he was a full-time first-grade, table-grade Olympic champion, and he's going to be our guest speaker at the Reaper Luncheon on November the 12th in Atlanta, Georgia, <coughs> just southwest of the airport at the Piccadilly Cafeteria, and I'm inviting all <laughs> listeners to come, and all you got to do is show up at 11 o'clock, buy your meal, sit down, and we will have a great program. Matter of fact, back in September, we had Captain Wayne Wardell and I've talked about that before. He was a POW, United States Air Force pilot. I knew him in 1962 at Craig Air Force Base. And he was, I guess, speaker. And, I mean, he was a first-class table grade good one. And that, Neil, is about all I got to say. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah. I'll be Neil, didn't, I was just going to say, Colleen had something to say about the silver liners. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Colleen, uh, tell us about what's going on there. Colleen? Uh, Cocktail she time. She might have stepped away from her headset, going a little bit long tonight. But, Cocktail uh, time. I know Colleen uh, was mentioning earlier, before we went on air, that uh, one of her colleagues, a flight attendant, had passed away. And I think her name was Johnson. Do you guys recall? Uh, her husband was Don Johnson. Jim Jim looked it up. Yes, look, uh, what I did, Neil, I looked in the roster, the Reaper roster, and I'm confused. Uh, it's Captain Donald G. Johnson, wife named Brenda, lives in Colt Deck, yeah. New Jersey, and yeah. I, I'm confused. Did he die or did his wife die? He no, she died. died. Yeah. 
He, he died, died on October June, the 18th. But his wife just died now. Yeah. This weekend. What now? And, the, and the husband died in June. Yeah. In June. Oh, she died yeah. on October the 18th. Yes. Yeah. See, I put the yeah. word out on this. That's why I want to have it right. She okay. died on April the 18th. And when did he die? He died sometime in June. She didn't say when. What day? Yeah. Okay, June of this year? Yes. Yeah. See, I put the word out on pilot deaths. That's why I want to know this. I put the word out that Captain uh, Donald G. Johnson died June 29th, and his wife died October the 18th. Is that correct? Sounds good. Okay. All right. I'll get the word out. I didn't know. I don't have him after he passed away either. But no. I put it on the, you know, on our website and all that. And you know, we have the least of deceased uh, pilots, and, and we all do the wise too. All right. So okay. Chuck, what you got? Great landing, Captain. Be sure to tune in again next Monday, October the 28th, for our annual Halloween show. It's a classic. The trip through the Bahama Triangle on Halloween night by Eastern's crew. Oh, about five seconds of twilight music we got there. Um, Albright signing off on behalf of our host, Dorothy Gaggin, Don Gaggin, Jim Holder, Colleen DeFleece, Mike Scott, Brenda Kevin, Mike Potter, and our producer, Neil Holland, playing our new sign-off music, Silver Wings by Merle Haggard. Mr. Producer, take the flight on Silver Wings. And good night, Eastern, everybody. Good night, Eastern. Good night. We love you, Eastern. Good night. Good night, Mark. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away. Don't leave me, I cry Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sun Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight
Good night, Easter. Good night, Easter. And friends from around the world.